0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. Today we are taking on one of the biggest high octane summer movies, certainly of my childhood, and perhaps of all time, Jan DeBaunt's directorial debut, 1994 Speed, which redefined Keanu Reeves' career and introduced us. Well, I guess some people have probably seen Demolition Man, but really introduced much of the country to the actress that would later become the Oscar winner, Sandra Bullock. There's a lot of fun stuff to go over about this movie, and I'm excited to get into it. But before we do, I just want to thank Thank you for watching the show if you are watching us on my youtube channel or if you're listening to us thank you for being an audio listener if you are watching us and you want to help the show grow you can check out the link to subscribe to the podcast down in the description below and if you're listening and you want to check out the video portion of the show you can find it on my youtube channel youtube.com slash dan merle movies For a summer movie about a runaway bus, Speed has its origins in a place that not many people might have guessed, the mind of legendary Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa. In 1986, a film called Runaway Train hit wide release, starring John Voight, that was based on a screenplay that Kurosawa had written back in the 1960s, but had never produced. He retained story credit for that film. The movie was released to generally positive reviews. Film critic Roger Ebert even awarded the movie four stars, but it didn't generate a whole lot of box office interest and kind of faded into obscurity. The movie is about two prisoners who escape and then find themselves on a runaway train that, through mechanical malfunction, is unable to stop. But their train to freedom was out of control.
1: There's nobody on this train but us. The brake shoes have burned off, the overspeed control must have gotten
0: screwed up. We fast forward a few years and find television writer Graham Yost, who was one of the minds behind one of my favorite shows on Nickelodeon growing up, Hey Dude. Hey. Yost's father saw the film Runaway Train and was telling his son about it, who then thought that the movie might be even more interesting if, in addition to the train not being able to stop or slow down, there was the added peril of a bomb on board. While the bomb may have come from Yost's brain, the actual speed of the bus can be credited to one of Yost's friends, who suggested that he amp up the premise of the film when he was pitching him an early version.
1: I told a friend, and first I had it, the bus couldn't drop below 20 miles an hour.
0: And I told that to a writing friend in Canada and he said, make it faster, make it 50. Yost wrote the first draft of the screenplay, which was sold to Paramount Pictures before it was put into turnaround and eventually taken to 20th Century Fox. There it found a director who was in search of his first feature film, Jan de Bont. de Bont. as we talked about in our Twister episode, was one of the most acclaimed and accomplished action cinematographers working in Hollywood at the time. In addition to shooting Die Hard for John McTiernan and Black Rain with Ridley Scott in the 1980s, de Bont had also reteamed with McTiernan for The Hunt for Red October and shot Flatliners with Joel Schumacher, Lethal Weapon 3 with Richard Donner, and Basic Instinct with Paul Verhoeven, all in the early 1990s.
1: You only basically get one chance. You know, if you screw it up, you are it's going to be so tough. And you're going to be also kind of typecast right away anyway. So I needed to be something that I knew I could do. When Mark Gordon gave me this screenplay initially, before you read it, I have to tell you it's about its about a bus. And I said, I'm going to to move about a bus, you know. That's going to be boring. But as I started reading it, I got millions of images in my head that I thought this could be fantastic.
0: With DeBont in place, attention turned towards casting, and as with any movie, the most important role is the lead role, in this case Jack travin an LAPD officer who finds himself in a battle of wits with a mad bomber named Howard Payne after Payne places a bomb on a bus that will go off if the bus dips below 50 miles per hour. It's a very simple concept, and don't worry, it's explained many, many times throughout the movie if you get lost. Keanu Reeves was far from the Safe and or conventional choice for this role. He was just five years removed from his breakout role in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and many people in Hollywood and honestly in the viewing public still viewed him as that stoner kid from the time travel movie. And Reeves was only a couple of years removed from a much derided role in Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula.
1: I've seen many strange things already. Bloody wolves chasing me through some blue inferno.
0: Yes, Point Break had come out just a few years earlier, but you have to keep in mind, in 1993, 1994, when they're making this movie, Point Break was not the action classic that it is now. It took a long time for people to come around on it. At that time, it had gotten sort of a mediocre reception, both critically and at the box office, and a lot of people thought, well, if Keanu Reeves can't make an action movie work with Patrick Swayze, what hope does he have to do it by himself? Legacy is a very weird thing, and Point Break hadn't quite... Quite caught on yet. Reeves seemed headed toward a different path, maybe one that took him into smaller films in which he'd received acclaim, like My Own Private Idaho. And he initially turned down the role of Jack Traven based on the initial script. He felt like it was a ripoff of the character John McClane and just didn't seem relatable. This kind of unflappable badass who was completely nonchalant in the face of mortal danger.
1: No, it's really kind of ludicrous that I leave a man with a bullet hole in his chest, Sorry. kind
0: of reclining on a bench. <laughs> but Reeves was tempted to take the part after a rewrite from Joss Whedon, who Graham Yost openly acknowledges changed almost every line of dialogue in the entire movie, including rewriting one of the movie's most iconic lines.
1: Pop quiz, hot shot There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, bomb is armed.
0: In addition to the rewrite which helped to shape and soften his character a little bit, Keanu Reeves was also attracted to the idea of being a bona fide action star, including the chance to do his own stunts. And action director Jan de Bont, knowing what challenged Reeves and what he might appeal to, used this as a selling point to pitch the movie to the young star.
1: The, the reason this movie works so well is that you always sense it's the actors who are doing it. It's not like over the shoulders. It's not stun doubles. What I was able to achieve with Keanu specifically is that I was able to tell him and convince him that it could be fun to be in an action movie, that it could be fun to do stunts yourself, to, do, to be physically really, really involved in the movie.
0: As Annie, the average citizen who steps up to drive the bus when the original driver is injured, several options were considered before Sandra Bullock was found. Of course, the role did eventually go to Sandra Bullock, who at the time was a relative unknown. Her biggest film role to date had been in the previous year in 1993's Demolition Man. Who develops these programs? Well, Cocteau Industries, of course. But why would the benevolent Dr. Cocteau send such a brute savage into our midst? For Bullock, speed represented the opportunity to do a more creative version of action movie filmmaking than she'd done previously, as she explains in this interview that was done during production. In Demolition Man, I did a little bit of action, but it was pretty much Sly in Wesley's film, and I was I was like the the Muppet, you know. I was sort of like you know part. This is no revelation, but I think one of the big reasons that Speed works is the natural chemistry between Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. They have maintained their friendship in the many years after Speed was produced. And that relationship, that chemistry was there from the very beginning, as you can see in these interviews that were done while the movie was being shot. He's, I've, I've really developed an, an incredible amount of respect for Keanu because he's so honest. I mean, he's like, there's no BS about Keanu. A
1: complete damsel in distress. Excuse us for a moment.
0: You just get to hang out with them, and just there's an ease. There's an incredible ease. Nice
1: blouse. Do you
0: think? I think it's nice. Very cool, huh? (laughs) How are you? I'm pretty well. Okay. As the film's antagonist, the bomber, Howard Payne, Dennis Hopper was cast after the movie was already in production. And I think that Dennis Hopper is a great choice for this part because he brings with him this manic anarchy. It's something you can see in almost every role that he did. And when you apply that energy to a movie like Speed, it brings in that great mixture when you're looking at action villains of that's great acting and is he acting? Interactive TV, Jack, wave of the future. (laughs) (laughs) It's something that it takes a very special actor to produce and i think that hopper has it in this movie oh in 200 years
1: we've come from my regret but i have one life to give for my country to f-
0: you the supporting cast includes alan ruck joe morton and jeff daniels as jack's partner harry Daniels was reportedly a little skeptical about the movie's prospects during production.
1: When we were making this movie, Jeff Daniels thought he was making a piece of crap. Uh-huh. I mean, Jeff is like, eh, it's another one of these movies. No, of course, after the movie came out, he was proud as hell of the picture, but he was kind of funny on the set during the making of the picture. He thought, well, what what is this kind of thing and, and what kind of movie
0: is this anyway? Filming took place in the fall and winter of 1993 in Los Angeles, mainly due to the fact that there was an unfinished stretch of freeway that the film crew was able Able to use in order to actually have a moving bus for most of the film there were no process shots no blue screen shots debont wanted an actual bus moving one of that reality and that's what you get in the film now, I didn't see Speed when it was released. I was 11 years old, and I was too young for R-rated movies, at least according to my mom. But one of the very first things I ever heard about the movie, other than the fact that it was being released, was about the opening sequence, the elevator rescue sequence, where Howard Payne has bombed an elevator full of passengers and is holding them for ransom. And there was an urban legend that passed around the schoolyard that somebody had tried to replicate this scene, had tried to rescue some passengers that were stuck in an elevator, and then the elevator had fallen and either decapitated or sliced the person in half. It changed depending on who was telling the story. I tried to do some research and see if this urban legend is actually true and couldn't find any evidence that it was, but this kind of goes to show you how a movie like Speed will seep its way into the public consciousness. There were even urban legends and myths that were started about the film. Regardless, the opening does a really good job of setting up our key hero and key villain, setting up the stakes for the rest of the movie, and it's a great introduction to Dennis Hopper's real energy and drive in this performance. He really does make this villain Far more compelling than he has any right being.
1: Terrorist holding a police hostage, he's got enough dynamite strapped to his chest to blow a building in half. Now, what do you
0: do? Before we get too far, I also want to credit composer Mark Mancina, as I did on Yann next film, Twister. It really is one of the greatest action scores of the 1990s. It is so of its era, and yet at the same time, is transcendent of it, and it's just great movie music. <laughs> I'd also like to point out that you know exactly what kind of movie this is when Jack and Harry enter the film by completely unnecessarily driving their car over a hill and onto the camera. It's that completely superfluous 90s action touch that tells you what the next 90 minutes to two hours of your life are gonna be like. And if you roll your eyes at that, they're going to be affixed to the top of your skull for the rest of the movie. Anything else that'll keep this elevator from falling? Uh, The basement. The city would like to avoid that event, Officer Travin. This opening portion of the film really takes up about a fourth of the run time, about 25 minutes, and ends with one of the best exit lines in history. I'm gonna go home, have some sex. The real movie actually begins just after that when Howard rigs a city bus to explode and to prove that he's serious, he blows up another bus near Jack Travin's home and I love the camera work on this, the way that we're tracking Jack. We see the bus pass behind him. The camera comes around. We lose sight of the bus. Then the bus is already behind him. And we see the explosion in the background all in one seamless shot. This is a great way to establish this action and just make this action very dynamic. You can tell that a great cinematographer was at the helm of this film. Jack eventually tracks down the bus in question, but is unable to keep it from hitting 50 miles an hour, which is what arms the bomb. And this brought up a question in a critic's review that Graham Yost noticed and has a very effective answer for.
1: Janet Maslin in the review said, When he's running along beside the bus... Why doesn't he just shoot the tires? Why doesn't he just shoot
0: the tires? It's not going...
1: Well, there's a reason. You know what what the reason? reason Because the movie would have been over.
0: I actually use this answer a lot when I'm looking at movies or when people bring up thoughts about movies, which is that if the characters always did the most logical thing, if they did the thing that makes the most sense or the easiest thing then most movies would never happen. We would have a lot of very boring movies. Suspension of disbelief. It's something that I always talk about. I think it's very important. Unless it's a glaring error, unless it's a lazy error, you do have to give movies a certain amount of credit because they are, by their very nature unreal and if you try to impress this standard of objective reality on the movie well then of course nothing like this would ever happen we go to the movies to be entertained we go to the movies to be fooled and tricked it's kind of like a magic show and if you're watching the hands and trying to figure out how they do the trick the whole time you're not going to have a whole lot of fun Of course, the very concept of this movie is also ridiculous. Anyone who spent five minutes in Los Angeles will know that any vehicle staying above 50 miles per hour for more than 10 to 15 minutes at a time uh, is an almost impossibility unless you're driving around in the middle of the night. And Graham Yost and Mark Gordon, the writer and producer of the film, knew this going in. And for them, it wasn't about being unrealistic. It was about ignoring certain aspects of reality in order for the movie to work.
1: I maintain that we spent the last month papering over every plot hole we could find. And we, then the week we before production, just,
0: just ripped them all off because it, it didn't matter.
1: You have to have some logic, but this is such an illogical Premise, well, well, the whole concept is ridiculous. It just makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, how but is a bus going to be able to stay above 55 well, miles can't.
0: per hour? The sequence following this where Jack boards the bus, has some great stunt work, as does the rest of the movie, and that's something else that Jan de Bont liked. He loved having an actor like Keanu Reeves that was willing to do his own stunts because that meant he could get his camera right in there in the action. It's something that he really thought would give speed, believability, and a real visceral feel, which it does have, and it's what the best action movies have. You don't just believe that you're seeing some people in danger. You believe that you're seeing the characters that you love in danger. That's the difference between a forgettable action movie and a movie like Speed. You have a script that establishes characters that you love, and you have a director who's able to shoot the action in a way that makes you believe that they're actually in peril. It seems like an easy combination, but fewer action movies than you would think are actually able to pull it off. Me! Oh darn... I'll continue our nonstop thrill ride with speed in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain one gram or less of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and are only 150 calories. They're great for people that are trying to eat better, cut back on those calories, or just have an overall healthier lifestyle without sacrificing taste. What's great is that I can keep these bars in the pantry right with everything else that tastes great. I can grab one. I love all of the flavors, and it is satisfying. It fills me up. It's a quick eat. It's healthier than most everything else that I would have grabbed for anyway, and it's something that can keep me going through the day they also come in great flavors like sea salt dark chocolate caramel sea salt and peanut butter dark chocolate that one is my favorite the combination of those two flavors with the great texture is really what i go for but you really can't go wrong no matter which flavor you choose no matter what your situation is it's a great snack on the go and they are gluten-free plant-based and non-gmo with no soy trans fat sugar alcohols or artificial colors And if you take a liking to one of the flavors like I have, you can also sign up to get subscribed to your favorite flavor so that you never run out. And if you do that, you get 10% off of every order that you subscribe to to keep you restocked with snacks that are healthy and make you feel good. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And I have a special deal for my listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting MonkPack.com and entering our promo code MOVIES at checkout. And Monkpack is so confident with their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's m u n k p a c k.com and select any product, then enter the code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monkpack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on, and I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the show. Held hostage at the whim of a madman. Now, if you've been with
1: us, you've seen the bus- The whim of a madman. I like that.
0: As the bus careens around Los Angeles, one of the movie's most memorable scenes involves a fake out involving a baby carriage full of, as my former co-worker and writer of Honest Trailer, Spencer Gilbert, was very fond of saying, cans, they're just cans. I'm cans. I'm no baby, okay. it was full of cats. Are you sure? Yes. Are you sure? This sequence was included as part of a studio note that Graham Yost received and decided to take to the extreme. There was a studio executive at
1: Fox who said in a meeting, a creative meeting with all the creative execs at Fox couldn't it almost hit a baby carriage or couldn't the bus almost hit a baby carriage at some point I remember saying to the guy who was working on the movie at Fox I said you know what we see that in every movie it almost hits a baby carriage almost hits something it can't hit the baby carriage we can't kill the baby and then I remembered my days in New York Seeing people pushing around shopping carts filled with cans, I thought, well, what if it was a baby carriage?
0: Of course, the movie's most famous action moment is also its biggest leap, both physically and logically, when the bus jumps over a 50-foot gap of freeway to get to the other side. This moment was suggested by director Jan de who wanted both the audience and the passengers on the bus to face a moment that they really weren't sure anybody would be able to survive. The Gap was created using the then-emerging CGI technology, a great example of how it can look really good when you use computers to work on two or three shots in a movie and not two or three hundred. And the bus was actually jumped. A stunt driver hit a ramp, threw the bus up into the air, and landed it. The stunt was done twice. It was a pretty dangerous stunt, but the results were very effective. It is the movie's signature moment, and more than likely sold quite a few tickets. After successfully navigating the bus to LAX where it's able to circle the runway and get away from all that pesky traffic, Jack Travin faces a couple of challenges. The first is the death of his partner Harry, who's tricked in a Silence of the Lambs-style fakeout into going to Howard Payne's house, only to find out that Payne is not there but has left the house booby-trapped to explode. Even though Jeff Daniels had serious reservations about this part, I think he plays this moment beautifully as he knows that his life is about to end. Then Jack realizes that he can't get these passengers off the bus even if the TV news cameras go away because Payne has installed a secret camera that will monitor everything that they're doing. So the LAPD does the only natural thing. They get a TV news crew to intercept the signal, record what's going on on the bus, then broadcast that recording on a loop back to Payne to make him think that everyone's still on the bus while they Secretly offload everybody else. I want you to make a tape and loop it so that it runs over and over, okay? Alright, run it. RUN IT! Alright, tapes rolling. As an AV guy, let me tell you, this is all nonsense, and it goes to that suspension of disbelief thing. First of all, you can't do it with the speed, no pun intended, that they do it in this film. The idea that you could record something, loop it, and then broadcast it back instantly, like in the matter of a few seconds, is something that nobody else could do. In addition to that, the loop doesn't make sense. Payne realizes that he's been fooled when he watches a passenger's handbag, who's there, and then disappears, and then goes away. The loop itself doesn't make sense, because what is that second image that they're to If it's just one looped piece of video, then you shouldn't see something disappear. That's a second image. Just from an editing standpoint, it really doesn't make any sense, and, and there's a different way that I would have done it if, if I were in charge, which is instead of the mysterious disappearing handbag, if Payne had noticed that in half of the movie, the scenery is going by outside of the bus backwards, because that would actually solve a few of my problems with this whole looping video thing, because when you loop a video, that means you're playing the same sequence of a clip over and over and over again and it hasn't been laid out on a tape so that it's running sequentially it would have to rewind and cue itself back up to play the loop again so I think a more effective way of doing it would have been Howard looking at the monitor and seeing outside the window that things were passing by backwards and he realizes that the tape is playing backwards and then playing forward it would have made a lot more sense it would have done away with some of these logic problems but you know what I'm not a screenwriter and I didn't write the movie. It is the closest thing to me though that breaks that suspension of disbelief but it's only because I'm an AV nerd. Most people probably don't give it a second thought. Also, I do have to say that this looping video gag does get a lot of credit because it did inspire one of my favorite all-time Simpsons jokes when Homer tries to convince Lenny and Carl to sneak away from work by using the trick that he saw in a movie. I saw this in a movie about a bus that had to speed around the city keeping its speed over 50 and if its speed Dropped, it would explode. But don't mind me, I'm just interrupting because if I play a clip for longer than eight seconds, the video will get hit for copyright. Here's the punchline I think it was called The Bus That Couldn't Slow Down. Annie and Jack escape from the bus just in the nick of time as it careens out of control and drives into a cargo plane that's loaded with what I can only assume are the world's gasoline and fertilizer supplies, which results in one of the best action movie explosions ever. And then the movie ends. You know, relationships that start under intense circumstances, they never last. Oh yeah? Yeah, I've done extensive studying on this. At least it's where the movie should end, but doesn't, because there's a whole other thing that we have to do, and I'm not the only one that has this opinion. Writer Graham Yost, who was asked to add the Subway action finale to the movie, seems to also think that the movie is just a smidge too long.
1: Drive safely, folks. The movie's over. Yep. This is it. The movie's over here. Yep. And I still feel that. I feel like it's, that's the end of the wonderful. movie. It's
0: wonderful, yep. And well, I mean, when it blows know, up, it's great. I know, I but know. But the third act was short enough that it worked. So the bus has been exploded, the passengers are safe, but Jack still has to take down Howard Payne. And when he inex takes Annie with him to the ransom money drop where the police are trying to capture him. Payne instead captures Annie and takes her down to LA's shiny new metro system. Payne kills the train's conductor who, by the way, I found out for the first time rewatching this movie, is Richard Schiff in an early, wordless, and thankless role. And then the train is on its way, another careening vehicle out of control. Payne and Jack fight on top of the subway train and Payne is eventually defeated when he's beheaded, complete with an action movie tag. Line that doesn't really make sense. Cause I'm smarter than you. I'm smart at you. Yeah. Well. I'm- Then Jack saves Annie, who's trapped on the train by causing it to go even faster. The speed is going to save them now, you see, and the train derails and crashes onto Hollywood Boulevard right in front of the Chinese Theater. Luckily, Jack and Annie are fine. Glass showers down, the couple make out, and everything is right with the world. Roll credits. Not much was expected of Speed when it was coming out. It had originally been given a late summer or early fall release date, and this is at a time when early fall in particular was a real dumping ground for crap. But 20th Century Fox realized in the test screening process that they may have stumbled onto a hit and gave Speed a mid-summer release date and a classic 90s action trailer to boot. For L.A. cop Jack
1: Traven, the game began when someone put the city of Los Angeles to the ultimate test.
0: Pop Chris hotshot. Speed, get ready for rush hour. Speed opened on June 10th, 1994, and in its first weekend ranked number one at the box office with a total just under $14.5 million, but it only stayed number one for one week. The next week, it surrendered the top spot to the Jack Nicholson film Wolf, and the week after that, both films fell to The Lion King, which was the juggernaut of summer 1994. But Speed had staying power, becoming the sixth highest grossing film of a very competitive summer 1994 and ending with a final domestic gross around $121 million. It was one of only 12 films in 1994 to pass the $100 million mark. Speed would go on to make nearly $300 million worldwide, becoming a massive hit, especially considering that it had a pretty modest $30 million budget, and the financial success of the movie is something that's still fondly remembered by those who made it. Here is writer Graham Yost and producer Mark Gordon recounting the opening weekend when Speed was just kicking the butts of both a children's television adaptation and the sequel to an Oscar-winning film.
1: Do you remember the movie that opened on the same weekend that we did? Why, yes, I do. What was it? City Slickers too. That's
0: correct. And it was also... We kicked their ass.
1: Kicked their ass. And they thought we were going to come in third that weekend behind City
0: Slickers 2 and the second week or third week of the Flintstones. Speed wasn't just a box office hit though. Critics loved the movie too, which was an increasing rarity in an action-flooded post-die-hard marketplace. In the same episode where The Lion King got a decidedly mixed positive review, Siskel and Ebert raved about the new thriller. Speed works. Boy, it sure
1: does. This movie was fun. This is what I call a bruised forearm movie because you grab the arm of the person sitting next to you
0: Like the movie that inspired it, Runaway Train, Roger Ebert awarded Speed four out of four stars, and the movie would go on in 1995 to win two Academy Awards, one for best sound and one for best sound effects editing. Speed also won five MTV Movie Awards out of nine nominations, three for Sandra Bullock, one for Dennis Hopper, and one for the film's climactic explosion sequence. If you wonder why I single out the MTV Movie Awards a lot, it's because they were actually a really big deal when I was growing up, when I was young and then going into my teen years, because it was this combination of blockbuster cinema and quote-unquote real movies. It was like the combination of a roast and the Oscars. There were all these different kinds of parodies, and you would get such a different group of films that won. I mean, look at that list in 1994. Everything from Dumb and Dumb to Pulp Fiction took home that bucket of popcorn. And I know that saying things like the MTV Movie Awards aren't what they used to be sounds like a really old man thing to say, but the MTV Movie Awards really aren't what they used to be. When I was growing up, and I know that sounds like an even more old man thing to say, the MTV Movie Awards gave Best Movie to movies like Pulp Fiction and Seven and A Few Good Men, Titanic, The Matrix. In 2008, Transformers won the Best Movie Award. And every year since then, the winner of the MTV Movie Award for Best Movie has been either a Marvel movie, a Star Wars movie, or a YA adaptation. Four Twilight films have won the Best Movie Award at the MTV Movie Awards. Four. I'll let you make your own decision. I saw Speed for the first time on VHS after my mom rented it, watched it, and decided it probably wasn't too intense for me. I was probably 12 by this point. And by virtue of that, I think that Speed was probably in one of the first four or five R-rated films that I saw unedited all the way through. I liked it then and I liked it now. I still think that it's stupid but believable. I like the action. I like the acting. I like the characters. I think it's as good a debut film as you could ask for from Jan de Bont. I've owned speed on several different versions of media, DVD, Blu-ray, which you can see over my shoulder. Uh, it's got an HD version of the movie, and it looks pretty good. It's got a couple commentary tracks. You've heard little snippets of both of them on this episode, uh, but that's about it. I've looked and seen that there are other editions of this film that are out there that have more extensive special features. That's not the version that I have, and this is one of my annoyances. It's one of the grievances that I have as a physical media collector. I love having the movies in my hands. I love being able to actually watch them not streaming, but... There are so many editions of every kind of movie and they seem to come out once or twice a year that it's hard to know what edition I'm getting or I buy this edition and another edition comes out a couple years later that has all different special features and I I can't just keep buying the same movie over and over. I mean, I can and I have, but I can't do it for all movies. This is one of the things with speed. Sometimes you gamble and you get a great edition of the movie that has the best features. Sometimes you gamble and you get a version of the movie that's bare bones. This version of the movie is bare bones. There's some great stuff out there on YouTube, though, that you can find about the making of speed, including some of the material that's been here in this episode. And I'm sure on other editions, there's some great making of documentaries, etc. Just not on this one. And that wraps up my look at speed. Thank you so much for watching the show. Come back next week. All June, we're going to be talking about big action movies, some of the best action films of all time. I'm really excited to share my thoughts on some of them, hopefully bring in some guests who also love action movies. As always, if you want to help the show grow, please become an audio subscriber. You can find the links down there in the description below. And if you're listening to us, please check the show out on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Movies. We'll be back next week with another big action movie, but until then, it's time to go back on the show. Thanks for watching.